please to book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 3. Give you the verse in a moment. <clears throat> well, just reading from verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, time to pluck that which is planted. Time to kill, time to heal. Time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. And particularly that one little sentence there, a time to laugh. Laughter is unique to human beings. There's no other creature on God's earth that laughs. In spite of what they say about the hyena, it doesn't really laugh. We're the only ones who's got the capacity and the ability. And furthermore, you will never hear two people with the same laugh. Laughter is a strange thing, isn't it? You ever in a room where everybody's laughing around you and you just listen to the laughter? It's a strange thing, isn't it? It's unusual. Imagine if you came from, say, some distant planet, planet Zanussi, say, or something like that. And you'd never seen human beings, never met them before, Suddenly you're in a group of them, they're all laughing. It must be the weirdest, strangest thing to behold. But laughter is wonderful, isn't it? It can be very therapeutic. It can be very uplifting, refreshing. But it can also be cynical and disparaging, mocking, and even downright cruel. We laugh at people. We laugh with people. We laugh when we're happy. We laugh when we're nervous. And if we're healthy and sane, we even laugh at ourselves. At least I hope you do. It's a good sign that you're in the right frame of mind. You can have a good laugh at yourself. So therefore, it's not surprising that the Bible has something to say about laughter. And that's what I want to share with you tonight. What does the Bible say about laughter? In Genesis chapter 17, there is laughter here. Two kinds of laughter. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, or a father of 
of many nations. For I have made you a father of many nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, I will be their God." So here is Abraham, and God is blessing him uh, mightily. And he's promising him something that is absolutely miraculous. And then in verse 15, Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah, or princess, that is, shall be her name, and I will bless her and will also give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, Whenever Abraham got this wonderful news about him and his wife is going to have this child, extremely late on in life, he was so ecstatic, he was so excited, he was so thrilled that he could do nothing less than laugh. And this was a laugh of pure joy. Now, you can imagine this is something he had waited for all of his life. This was going to be the son of promise to this couple. And God waited and waited and waited till he was 99 years old. Imagine coming to a man at 99, and his wife was 89, and saying, by this time next year, you're going to have a child. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? Imagine Abraham going into mother care and ordering a pram. And the assistant saying, if you don't mind me saying, sir, can I ask you who the pram is for? Is it for your great-grandchild? And he would say, no, it's for my child. Oh, you have a child. Well, not exactly, but about this time next year he will be born. Well, your wife then must be very young. Actually, no, she's 89 years old. I mean, you see how ridiculous this is in the natural. But whenever he got this news, he was absolutely thrilled, and he laughed out loud. He just couldn't help it. And you couldn't blame him. Sure you couldn't. It was a laugh of joy. But then later on down in chapter 18, then the Lord appeared to him by the uh, terribent trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself down to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Now, these three men suddenly appeared. And the moment they appeared, he knew rightly that they were different. They weren't just ordinary men. They looked like men, but they were different. In fact, who these three were was, this was a, most believe commentators that 
One of them was an Old Testament appearance of Christ, and the other two were angels. And so he immediately recognizes there's something different about these three men. So he says, Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts, and after that you may pass by, insomuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried to the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man and hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. He stood by them under the tree as they ate. Now this would be a very typical Bedouin form of hospitality. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, this is the first time that Sarah has heard this directly. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind them. Now, note that she wasn't with them. She was in the tent a little way off, but she was listening. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, also being old? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Surely I shall bear a child? Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So that shows you that her laugh was different. And the Lord wasn't particularly pleased with it. Why is she laughing? It's no laughing matter. Does she not believe me? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is the laugh of unbelief, actually. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. Why do you suppose she was afraid? She was afraid because it says she laughed within herself. She didn't laugh out loud. She laughed within herself. But the man heard the laugh. And she realized he knows everything that's in my heart. He knows every intention, every thought of my heart. He knows every thought of my mind. He knows. No wonder she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. This is the laughter of unbelief. Men laugh at that which they do not believe in. They laugh at that which they do not believe in. It's a laugh of unbelief. It's a laugh of skepticism. Men laugh at this word of God. They say that it is fables, mythology, that it's a relic of past times, dark times, before the age of reason and science and enlightenment. But we're enlightened people today. We're not in the dark ages anymore. We do not need this book to tell us anything. 
And they laugh at it. And they scorn it. Voltaire, the noted atheist, one time made this bold pronouncement. He said, in 100 years, he says, the Bible will be no more. It'll be gone. No one will ever read it. It'll be finished. One hundred years after he's died, his house was sold to the Bible Society. <laughs> he started publishing Bibles in his house. I think God had the last laugh on that, don't you? You see, this Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Every generation has its critics and its skeptics who try to do away with this book, but it has outlasted them all. And so they laugh at the Word of God. They laugh at the story of creation. They say that it's not evidence-based. It's not scientific. And so they go back into 13 point billion years to the so-called Big Bang. They said, you see, we have uh, extrapolated our studies and finds on computers, and we can go all the way back to some point in the distant past when there was this massive explosion. What caused the massive explosion? Materials. Where do the materials come from? Well, we don't know. They were just there. But where did they come from? There must have been something caused the Big Bang. If you say there was materials, there must have been something then before the Big Bang. No, there was nothing. Stephen Hawking has now said there was nothing before the Big Bang. Because you see, the creationist always says, well, there had to be something. And he says, no, there was nothing. So where's the evidence for that? Where's the science for that, can I ask tonight? And so whenever we speak of creation and we speak from the Bible, they laugh at it and they're skeptical and they say it's fairy tales or it's a fable or it's just a metaphor, but it's not right. It's not how it happened. Well, I don't know about you, but I prefer to stick to the Word of God because you know what? For thousands of years, this story has remained the same. The account of creation has not changed in thousands of years. It's remained the same. But the account by the scientists changes continually. Continually. Every generation it changes. So they don't believe the story of creation. They don't believe about the flood and the ark. Even though they have to admit that there is something somewhere, sometime, caused a cataclysmic event that wiped out all life as we know it then, the dinosaurs. And so they said it must have been an asteroid. There's absolutely no evidence for that whatsoever, but suddenly there had to be a reason for it, so an asteroid, that seemed to fit the bill. So let's say it's an asteroid. That's what did it. But the Bible says it was the flood. But rather than believe the story of the Bible, they believed in an asteroid. And now they're not even sure about that. Now they're changing even that today because that's not exactly fitting the bill anymore. I prefer to believe this because this never changes. 
don't believe in the virgin birth, don't believe in the resurrection, they laugh at it. They say it's impossible, it's not scientifically true, it is not a fact. Don't believe in the new birth. Said it's just a crutch for people who can't get through life. Don't believe in heaven, don't believe in hell. Figment of men's imaginations, it's just something to scare people or something to make people comfortable when they die. Mr. Hitchens, noted atheist, English, lives in America, who's just died recently. An atheist to the day he died. Funny, his, his brother is the total opposite. His brother's a godly man. Isn't that strange, isn't it? He started out an atheist like his brother. The two of them used to argue. And then he says he began to study the Bible. And he says he no longer could be an atheist. But sadly, his brother continued to the day he died. And uh, he wrote a book, God is Not Great. And he said, I am not just an atheist. I am an anti-theist. I told you this morning in another context, an atheist, an atheist is a non-believer in God. He says, I'm not just a non-believer in God. I'm against God. I'm against the belief in God. I am anti-theist. And he says, to the day I die, and he was true to it, he says, I will contend against Almighty God, the belief in Almighty God. I will contend against it. And he did. I bet he's changed his mind now. But it's too late. Sadly. And so here is the laughter of unbelief. Where men think this is a joke. Or they laugh at you in the workplace. They laugh at you behind your back. They think you're weak. That there's something wrong with you. That you're emotionally fragile. But I say, this book will stand the test of time. <laughs> and it will never fail. And let every man come against it. But God will make sure his word stands. In the end, Sarah produced Isaac. His name means laughter. So God did have the last laugh, didn't he? Now over in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, just across the page a little bit, here's another kind of laughter. Verse 6, For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This is also vanity. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This is also vanity or vain or empty. A hollow ring to it. There's a lot goes on in this world. There's a great laugh at the start, but it ends in tears. Like the sparks of fire under a pot, the laughing of this world is very fleeting. It's very short-lived. The Saturday night party ends up with sore heads Sunday morning. There's nothing funny or laughable about drug addiction. It seems a great laugh to go out for the night and try it. And many do. 
And it seems fun, but it ends up in tears. All the ads you see on TV for the drink, it's all laughter and joy and fun and great camaraderie and great crack and it's wonderful. Try talking to an alcoholic and see how funny it is. See if that ends up in laughter. Ends up in tears not only for them but for their whole household. For everybody that loves them, that's dear to them. Permissive age we live in, it's great, it's fun, lovely. Go out, sow your wild oats. Nothing funny about venereal disease. It's no laughing matter, is it? It's a major, major problem in Britain today. It's rocketing, it's going through the roof today. Nothing funny about it. Look at the so-called stars and celebrities. They have all the money their hearts could desire. They have all the fame their hearts could desire. How many of them has ended up in tears? How many of them has ended up in clinics and the priory and all the rest of it? You think if they had all that fame and all that money and all that stuff that people desire in this life, you think if they had all of that, they'd be the happiest people on earth. I don't see much sign of it. For many, many, many of them, they end up in tears. Somebody mentioned comedians in the, uh, our home group on Tuesday night. How many comedians? Some of the funniest men that we laughed at, that was wonderfully funny. But in their real life, they were miserable. Many of them committed suicide. Couldn't live another day. Yet they would go on stage and they'd make people laugh. But they couldn't laugh at themselves or with themselves. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This is also vanity. It's vain. It's empty. We'll come on to good laughter in a minute, by the way. You'll be glad to know. <laughs> in case you think I'm being totally morbid tonight. Come with me to Psalm 2. Did you know that God laughs? Psalm 2 is a very short little psalm. There's only 12 verses. It's one of those uh, prophetic messianic psalms written by David, partly about David, but above and beyond his life, it's about Christ, the Son of God. It's in four stages. Verses 1 to 3, David is speaking, the psalmist here. Verses 4, 5, and 6, God the Father speaks. Verse 7, 8, and 9, God the Son speaks. Verse 10, 11, 12, God the Holy Spirit speaks. And so David, speaking prophetically about the Messiah who would come, who would be his greater son, believing that Messiah would come, and so he's looking far into time. And here's what he said. He's thinking about the Messiah that would come. And here's what he said. Why do the nations rage and the people 
plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Let's just unpack that a little bit. Why do the nations rage and the people plot, or as it says in the original, the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against God, Jehovah, and against his anointed, Christ saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Now, there's always been rebellion on this earth. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, that rebellion has come through mankind against God and against his Son. You can trace it all the way through from Genesis and it'll be all the way through to Revelation. It's there. And of course it came to a, a tremendous peak whenever Christ was on the earth. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? People today use their imagination against God and against Christ and against Christianity, against the Judeo-Christian teaching of the Bible. They use their imaginations against it. They plot and imagine ways to attack it, to denigrate it, to make it seem foolish and less than what it is. And it's not only the leaders. It's not only here it says the kings and the rulers, but the nation and the people do it. So in other words, not only do the rules and authority in our day, it's the politicians, but not only them, but the people. Have you noticed, well, you couldn't fail but notice that within this past number of recent years, Government after government after government, whether here or in the, particularly in the Western world, Britain and America, government after government after government has brought out more laws limiting the powers of Christians, limiting the ability of churches, figuring all kinds of ways to limit us and to hem us in. And it's not just coming from the politicians, but the people. The people get behind it. The people before it. You would think, would you not, that when you see politicians angling to get into positions of power and you hear what they're about, you would think that the people would realize that can't be right. That, that, that can't be right but they get behind it and they support it. Until we get to the stage today where some of the laws that the politicians are bringing in to hinder and to hamper the work of God and Christ and the church and the Bible, the people gets behind it and they vote for it and they support it. 
And here's what they say. <clears throat> here's the reason for it. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. You see, whether it's the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, whether it is the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament, the Judeo-Christian ethics that is contained in this book is no longer acceptable in our society. And our society, from the leaders down, are forcing the issue and bringing laws to curb it. <clears throat> Why? Because they don't want the restraints of it. They don't want the cords and the bands of it. Well, the Bible says, this is what marriage is like. Man today says, no, no, nobody's going to tell me how to live my life. See what I'm saying? So all the restraints, all the limitations, which, by the way, are good for us. That's why God put them there. Good for society. But they want them cast away, break the bands of it. It's limiting. This is the 21st century, don't you know? We don't need these rules and these regulations that the Bible talks about. But we do need them. And we suffer without them. And then we wonder why that our nation is falling to pieces. We wonder why our youth is binge drinking and riddled with venereal disease. We wonder why abortion is at an all-time high. We wonder why there's so much crime and murder and all the rest of it. Why? Because we have abandoned the Judeo-Christian ethic. We have abandoned what's in the Word of God. We said we don't want it. America is no different today. Same thing is happening. <clears throat> so David says this, and then, <clears throat> excuse me, God the Father speaks. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. And he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. No matter what this world does, no matter what king, what president, what prime minister, no matter what rules they make, at the end of it, it will not succeed. God is in control. He will allow it to continue for a while, but you can be absolutely sure he will come, and he'll come with a rod, and he will put a stop to it. David wondering about Christ that was to come, wondering about the Messiah. Notice what he says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Zion is prophetically speaking of Jerusalem, by the way. Isn't it interesting? That here we are in the 21st century. And the whole news is filled about nations that we read about in the Bible. Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Israel. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that that tiny little nation less than 1% of the world's population, and that little city of Jerusalem 
is the most talked about city on the face of the earth. Is that coincidence? Why should that be? Isn't it interesting that Israel today has hardly got a friend in the world left? Apart from Britain and America, who at this very moment are hardly their best friends, they're, even though they're their only friends. And so the nations are gathering together and they're closing around and they despise. The United Nations despises Israel. They hate Israel with a passion. Why is that? Why should a tiny little nation, tiny little population, tiny city by world city standard, why should it get the whole world's attention? Because it's a prophetic thing. Because God has made it so. And one day the nations of this world will come to Israel in that last great war in the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon. That's where it will be, right there in that little strip of land. And here we are living in our generation and we're beginning to see it unfold before our very eyes. But here's the promise, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. King Jesus will come and he'll reign and he'll rule. <laughs> now here's the son, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. One day Christ is going to come back and he's going to reign and he's going to rule on this earth. There is nothing sure than that. But listen, verse 10, 11, 12. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The Bible says that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked none whatsoever. And God is long-suffering, He's of tender mercies, and He pleads, and He begs, and He waits, and He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But one day, one day, when they finally refuse, He'll come back as a judge, and He will judge. Where are the great empires of yesteryear? Where is Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persian, Grecian, Roman? Where are those great world empires? Gone into the dustbin of history. Where is Hitler today? Where's Pol Pot? Where's Mazzi Tung? Where's Mussolini? Where's Stalin? Where's Lenin? They're gone. All those that shook their fist at God, they're gone. Where is Saddam Hussein? Gone. Where is Colonel Gaddafi? Gone. <laughs> he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. 
That's the laughter of God's condemnation. I don't want God laughing at me. No, sir. But then there's the laughter of God's people. See, I told you it was going to get better. The laughter of God's people in Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. And they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Verse 5, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The Apostle Paul wrote some of his pistols while he was in prison. Philippians is one of them. And so while he was languishing in the prison house, most of us would have been feeling sorry for ourselves, but not Paul. He writes a letter to the church at Philippi, a church that was very dear to his heart, a church that was going through difficult times. He's going through worse times. He writes to this church and 16, sorry, 19 times, 19 times in four chapters, he mentions either the word joy or rejoicing or gladness. Because the people of God in difficult circumstances has got a hope, has got a peace, has got an answer that this world can't give. And here's this man in the most difficult circumstances, and yet he's so full of joy. He just can't stop writing about it, and he just wants to give it to other people. He just wants to encourage other people. <clears throat> what was the secret? How did he do that? Well, 16 times he refers to the mind. Ten times, mind. Five times, think. One time, remember. And so here he is. He's sitting and he's thinking. And he's thinking, even though he's in prison, even though he's in chains, he's thinking of the goodness of God. He's thinking of the blessings of God. He's thinking about his brothers and his sisters in another place. And he's writing to them and he's thinking and he's full of joy. He's full of joy. Proverbs 23, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. How do you think? What do you think? What do you think about? Now you know that you can sit and mope and moan, and gripe and grumble and do all those things. And the Lord knows we've done plenty of that, haven't we? All of us. But where does it get you? What does it do? Does it solve anything? Does it bring you any closer to the answer? Absolutely not. But when you begin to meditate on God's Word, 
You begin to think what God has already brought you through. When you begin to think of your future in Christ, you begin to think differently. And then there's joy comes. There's peace comes. There's blessings come. There's laughter comes. It's all right to have a good laugh, isn't it? Eh? Well, I'm looking at some of your faces. I'm not too sure whether, isn't it? Somebody says, if you're happy, notify your face. Sometimes you can be in a situation where there's nothing to laugh about in the natural. What's happening to you? But something deep down inside you says it's going to be all right. The Lord is in control. I will come through this. I will get over this. I will be blessed. I will go on with the Lord no matter what. And when you start to think that way and talk that way, then something inside of you begins to change. With Christ in the vessel, what does the chorus said? We can smile at the storm. And then there's more. We finish. There's the laughter of eternal blessedness. The laughter of eternal blessedness. In Luke chapter 6, And we're just about through in a second. Verse 20, Jesus lifted up his eyes towards the disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. One of those wonderful Beatitudes. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning, Psalm 30 tells us. And so there is the laughter of eternal blessedness. <clears throat> In Revelation 21, and this is the very last scripture I'll give you tonight, in Revelation chapter 21, <clears throat> verse 1, <clears throat> excuse me. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. There shall be no more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow. The implication is that there will be laughter in heaven. I think that the corridors of heaven will be peeling with laughter. 
I think we will have much to rejoice about and much to laugh about. Isn't it nice when you're with some friends and, and there's laughter in the room and there's joy in the room? Have you ever been in a situation, I don't know, maybe something's happened to you that's been extraordinary, and in that moment you felt such joy, such pleasure, and you laughed till your sides were splitting and your cheeks were sore, and the water was streaming down your face out of your eyes. You were just so thrilled and joyful and ecstatic. And it only lasts for a moment, doesn't it? But can you imagine heaven where every day of your life through all eternity you will be filled with joy? You'll be walking about with a big grin on your face. <laughs> It's nice when you see somebody with a big grin on their face and you're thinking, I wonder what they're smiling at. Something good must have happened. I think everybody in heaven will have a big grin on their face. And then there will be the glad reunions. Wouldn't that be lovely? People who died in the Lord, family, friends, loved ones, people that maybe you haven't seen for years. I have a little sister that I've never seen. She died before I was born. I'm going to meet her. And you know what? I will instantly recognize her, and she will recognize me. That's the wonderful thing about heaven. What reunions we're going to have. What a glad day that's going to be. Don't you think when you see your loved one in heaven, do you think you'll have a big sad face? I don't think so. I think you'll have a big grin from ear to ear, and you'll be going with your hands out, and you'll be hugging, and it'll be wonderful. You'll be back slapping, it'll be great. You'll be high-fiving, you'll be doing everything. It'll be wonderful. Heaven is such a glorious, wonderful place. Aren't you glad you're going there tonight? Listen, there's going to be no laughter in hell. People say, oh, I want to go to hell because that's where the big party's going to be. There's going to be no party there. The Bible says, be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in utter darkness. There'll be no company there. There'll be no laughter there but there'll be laughter in heaven. There'll be joy. The Bible says, listen to it as we close, the Bible says there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. When one person comes to the Lord, all heaven is filled with joy. So they must be filled with joy all the time because every moment of every day, there's people all over the world that is coming to Christ. Heaven must be a joyful place. Amen. So the Bible has much to say about laughter. And God has given us something to laugh about today. He's given us something to smile about and to be happy about. I was just uh, looking at this old hymn book today. A song came to my mind. And uh, I thought it was a wonderful song. If I can find it now, you can see I'm kind of drawing this out a bit because I'm looking for it here. And uh, I've kind of lost it. I don't know where it is. <laughs> but I have two or three of them, so I'm sure I'll be able to find it. Uh, let me just look at the index here for it. I know where it is somewhere here.
Well, here's another one anyway. I'll find that over in the night about 12 o'clock. <laughs> I'll be lying in bed, ready to go to sleep. Bang, it'll just come out of my head like that, and I'll sing it all night. Now, Clifford, you know there's lots of great hymns in this old book, and we don't sing that many of them, and we should sing more of them. That's a big hint, by the way. I'm just giving you there now to all you <laughs> worship leaders there. <laughs> but here's one here. How many remember this? I'm rejoicing night and day as I walk the pilgrim way for the hand of God in all my life I see and the reason of my bliss, yes, the secret all is this, that the Comforter abides with me. He abides, he abides, hallelujah, he abides with me. I'm rejoicing night and day as I walk the narrow way for the Comforter abides with me. He is with me everywhere, and He knows my every care. I'm as happy as a bird and just as free, for the Spirit has control. Jesus satisfies my soul, since the Comforter abides with me. There's some great hymns of joy in this. I, Clifford, we need to get on to some of these. I'm telling you, we do. We really, really do. Uh, here's, here's the one. Here it was here. It was right before my very eyes, all right? Now, this is written by Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby was blind. She was blind, totally blind. She could write things like this. On that bright and golden morning when the Son of Man shall come and the radiance of His glory we shall see, when from every clime and nation He shall call His people home, what a gathering of the ransom that will be. Remember this one, Gary? You could lead this one, couldn't you? What a gathering, what a gathering, what a gathering of the ransomed in the summer land of love. That's a lovely thing. In the summer land of love. What a gathering, what a gathering of the ransomed in that happy home above. When the blessed who sleep in Jesus at his bidding shall arise for the silence of the grave and from the sea. And with bodies all celestial they shall meet him in the skies. What a gathering and rejoicing there will be. And then it ends by saying this. Oh, the King is surely coming and the time is drawing nigh when the blessed day of promise we shall see. Then the changing in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and forever in His presence we shall be. What a gathering, what a gathering, what a gathering of the ransomed in the summer land of love. What a gathering, what a gathering of the ransomed in that happy home above. <laughs> what a gathering that's going to be, amen? What joy there's going to be in heaven. Wouldn't it make you want to go there right now? Oh, no, there's not he's too sure about that. Sure he is not. <laughs> Glory to God. Sally and I are uh, going to take a few days in July. It's just three days, actually, and we're going to go to somewhere that I have always wanted to go to. And uh, we just booked it the other day. And do you know what? I have been reading up on it. I've been thinking about it. I was thinking about it today. And in fact, I went on the Internet and I looked at some stuff today and I thought, do you know? God willing, I'll be standing there uh, this summer. I don't know how I'm going to feel when I get there because it's not a place for a holiday. I'm not going on a holiday, by the way. This is something we need to see and I want to do. And, uh, but already, already before I get there, I'm thinking about it. I'm looking at it. I'm wondering about what's it going to be like? Hey, what's it going to be like when you get there? What's it going to be like when you get there? Are you thinking about it? Do you ever think about it? Do you think about heaven at all? I went into the faith mission one day. I, I'm talking too much. I'm finished preaching, by the way. I went into the faith mission one day and because I, I got to think about heaven and about hell and I thought, I wonder how many books are in the faith mission about heaven and hell. Do you know you could count in two hands? Isn't that amazing? A Christian bookshop. And you could count in two hands the many books are written about heaven and hell. I, I mean, I thought there'd be a whole rack of the things, but there isn't. 
There isn't. And yet that's the place where we're going for all eternity. I want to know all I can. In fact, read the last couple of chapters in the book of Revelation. Try to find out all you can about it because that's the place where you're going. And if you were going on your holidays, you'd want to know everything about it, wouldn't you? Anybody going on a cruise this year? <laughs> Did you see the ad in the Belfast Telegram? I'm, I'm, you're not filming this year, you I've got to watch these boys. Did you see the ad in Belfast Telegraph last week? Did you see that? And it said, your dream holiday. And underneath it was the foot of that ship, the Concordia. That was bad, wasn't it? That was bad planning. I mean, whoever put that in? I mean, your dream holiday. Big banner writing. And underneath it, that terrible image of that ship on its side. <sighs> Scary stuff, isn't it? So anybody, who has gone on the cruise this year? You, David. You live on cruise ships, don't you? That, that fellow has about two or three cruises every year. So he does. What about you, Rachel? Are you planning this year now? You enjoyed it, didn't you? It was great, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I loved it. You read up on it, didn't you, before you went? Uh, you on the internet too, weren't you? Saw all the rooms and all the rest of it. See, that's what I mean. If you're going somewhere, you read up on it. Let's read up about heaven, eh? Come on, stand with me. Lord, your word says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. We thank you that we have much to be joyful about. We are so blessed in so many areas, but above all because our name is in the book of life tonight, we rejoice in your mercies. We rejoice in your forgiveness. We rejoice in your goodness. And we thank you for the life of Christ that you have given us. And so, Lord, as we go into this working week, we pray for your blessing. We pray, Lord, for that joy to be in our hearts. And, Lord, that we'll spread it abroad. We'll not go to work miserable with sour faces. The Lord, will go with a smile on our face because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we give you thanks for this day in your house. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.